I read that Tony Iommi taught himself piano while he was in the mansion, and it sounds just like this is what you would get from somebody who played piano for two days. Yeah, two days straight though on cocaine. To be <laughs> okay, all right. Well, so <laughs> yes. maybe he's reaching that ten thousand hours there, right? <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to another week of 1001 Album Complaints, the show where lifelong friends and musicians dive deep into Robert Dimery's list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die. Each week we pick an album, we analyze it, we complain about it, we laud praise upon it. This week we've been listening to Black Sabbath's Volume 4. So very excited to get into this one, and we're going to shortly, but before we do, I just wanted to say that if you're enjoying listening to us blather on about all these records, uh, feel free to go ahead and the best thing you can do for us is to go ahead and share this with another friend, a like-minded musical nerd, if you will, and go ahead and rate and review us on those various podcast apps you might use. We would really appreciate it. It means a lot to us. It gives, it's the wind beneath our wings, you might say. (laughs) Well said, sir. Well said. Right, right. I think that's came up in a song at one point. And if you, of course, if you have any feedback for us, you can always email us at 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. And today, very exciting, I have some, some fan mail to read right here on the air. And in fact, the other boys in the studio have not heard this yet. Now, we are a little bit behind on our fan mail. The mailbox has been so stuffed so full. full. Right. It's been a little yeah. hard to parse through what's going on. <laughs> and then with all the spam, too, right? You know, Lots spam, of spam. Real problem, just in general. Arby's coupons usually make up the bulk of it. So I'm waiting for Rob to start reading a Viagra ad. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> Right, yeah, dude. Arby's causes erections. Right. <laughs> okay. Good point. So I I'm wanted just to. Say that doesn't really make sense. <laughs> I wanted to pass along. So Brett wrote, "Great podcast, guys." He's writing specifically after listening to the Sparks Kimono My House podcast, and he says this album, meaning the Sparks album, absolutely sucked. I was, I too was surprised at their catalog and thought their album cover art was the best part of them. I also thought of Zappa, like we did, and also ABBA and Trans-Siberian Orchestra. He says, my initial thought was this woman has got some operatic yodeling voice going on on the first track. It's kind of weird, kind of interesting. And then the next song came on and I realized that the whole fucking album was going to be like this. (laughs) What a difficult listen. A difficult listen, right? So he was he was very complimentary, and he said, uh, hey, I just finished the podcast, and while you guys are definitely on to something with some of the deep dives, I still believe that this band sucks. <laughs> so just, Noted. Right. Has anybody yeah, but, else dug into any of the other Sparks yet? I, I don't have the time. I don't have time. I said I was no. You kidding me? Come on. All I, I got a full-time <laughs> job listening to these listen records. It, right, exactly. <laughs> time for enjoying music. I'm doing this goddamn podcast. <laughs> you got to listen to number 17 of Black Sabbath. <laughs> <laughs> 
So thanks, Brett. We appreciate you writing in. Glad you're enjoying the podcast. He also mentioned he enjoyed the Let It Be breakdown and uh, might go check out that Sparks documentary. Maybe that'll help him out with the appreciation. I, I do think that helped me. It's, it's always nice to hear other famous people talking about about how much they love a band. That, that gives you the uh, permission to like something right. particularly strange, I think. Again, Weird, Weird Al liked them, so it gave me permission to jump right on board. <laughs> Heck yeah. Heck yeah. So we always appreciate that. Any feedback you want to give us, go for it. Uh, like I said, this was uh, the most cogent thing we've received so far, so thanks thanks again. All right, uh, let's transition it on over to our friends in Black Sabbath. And maybe just by way of getting a little taste of what we've been listening to this week, let's just play a little sample of the first track, Wheels of Confusion. In case you've never heard of the band Black Sabbath, they're a fairly popular outfit. They have a fairly well-known lead singer in Ozzy Osbourne. But I just wanted to make sure we got some music out of the way. Let's go around the room and have everyone introduce themselves and give an encapsulated tweet-length review of Black Sabbath's Volume 4. And to kick that off, I'm going to first go to Adam. Hey, this is Adam, and a couple things. So first off, I'm upset that I missed the Drive Like Jehu album because you guys talked about Scrapple, which is awesome and delicious. So I was very <laughs> bummed I didn't get to that. Regarding this album, so uh, after being forced by record execs to change the name of the album from Snowblind to Volume 4, Black Sabbath poses the age-old question, how much cocaine is too much cocaine? <laughs> to which the answer is... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> excellent, excellent. Let's kick this over to Phil. Uh, yeah, I mean, my impression is, I mean, it's a great record. It's a, it's a classic Sabbath record. I thought it was a little higher production value than, than the others. It was an interesting listen for me because I actually don't own this, and I sort of think of this as like the last of the early Sabbath records. Uh, I, 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 you know, I guess, you know, I, don't, I guess I don't have a tweet length review. I don't, I don't. I've gone long form. I've gone rogue. <laughs> Just very, very fill of you. Let's, right. kick, let's, <laughs> let's kick it right over to you, Tom. Hi, everybody. This is Tom. Um, yeah, my tweet length review is Black Sabbath goes for an epic big sound on their fourth album, and it definitely shows a band that has matured in their song composition. I feel like some of their earlier songs, while they rocked, felt a little sometimes a little preschool to me and this one did not this felt more mature nice mine was sabbath does la i mean like all of it up their nose <laughs> <laughs> 
So yeah. So the stories go. So the stories go. Yeah, there are some great stories, and as we know, Ozzy Osbourne has been a great media character throughout the years. So there's there was lots of interview material and great quotes about the fun these these gents were having recording this. But let's just back up for a second. Let's talk a little bit about this band, Black Sabbath. I was excited we got to do this one because it is, you know, if you can say a lesser known Black Sabbath record, this is their fourth record. The first two, I'd say, are extremely well known. The, the second one in particular, Paranoid, which produced such massive hits as Iron Man, the title track Paranoid, and of course, War Pigs. The first album, just t- self-titled, establishes them as as this new sound, this doom metal, early heavy metal. They're the progenitors of this new style. Three, number three is called Master of Reality. It's always been a little bit of a favorite of mine. It's got some great tracks on it. Shows them a little, you know, maturing a little bit, but I I admit this was a lesser familiar one for me. And, but one thing that's worth mentioning is how fast they turn these albums out. The chronology here is four records in like under two and a half years. Wow. So that that first record came out in 1970. Then the second record also came out in 1970. Yeah. Then the third record came out in 71. And this volume four, that is, is came out in 1972. And really, it was the first time when they felt like they had any kind of break or any kind of time to stretch their legs and record what they wanted to record. A little bit more time in the studio, a little bit more time to write. You know, I think they'd just been touring constantly that entire time. And just a very prolific band. So I think that's important context because almost any evolution of the sound in that time should be given almost sort of extra credit. That's not happening over an extended period. Such a compressed, right. We're not talking a decade. Two and a half years for them to yeah make that progression is pretty pretty impressive. To be fair, they they might have spent like five years worth of wakeful time in those two and a half years <laughs> because of the cocaine. Yeah, no, no, there's no sleep. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So let's get right to it. Let's get right into these recording sessions. So this was released in September of 1972. It was recorded over kind of May and, and June of that year. They rented a mansion in Bel Air in L.A. and we're having speaker boxes full of cocaine delivered sometimes twice a day. Is that GoPuff doing that? Like, who is just bringing over suitcases full of cocaine? Apparently, they, of course, had some dealer contacts. There's some different musicians in L.A., but then supposedly they were also getting it flown in on private plane, like, direct Jesus. from Columbia. Oh my God. And so, yeah, Ozzy was, was heard to say, I was putting so much of this stuff up my nose, I had to smoke a bag of dope every day just to stop my heart from exploding. <laughs> <laughs> just to even it out. <laughs> yeah. What is, presumably dope is heroin in this case? What is, I think it's, no, no, I think it's talking weed. about pot. Weed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, he went on to say, it would be almost impossible to exaggerate how much coke we did in that house. So here's the thing. You you mentioned earlier, like, the epic tales of all the fun that they had making this album. That does not sound fun. It sounds like just pale drop sweat. That's, like, all I think about when I, just guys in there, like, shaking and drop sweat and then flop sweating and just, uh, uh, you know, while you're trying to get this solo out. I Yeah, I, I know. I agree with you. And I think they feel more regretful of that. You know, after that happened, they realized how paranoid it made them, how unhealthy it was, how it was not actually good for the band. It upped tensions and things like that. 
But at the time, doing, doing copious amounts of stimulants. Yeah, and they well, they had really just discovered coke was the thing. They were really a booze and marijuana kind of outfit for those first few years. You know, nice and slowed down blues riffs, and that was their vibe. And then they it sort was of still dis- heavy, but yeah, they discovered cocaine and they got really excited by it. And <laughs> the other part of the vibe that I think is key here is this is this is the first thing they recorded outside of England. So they're from Birmingham, England, which is considered kind of a a little bit of a backwater. <laughs> the metal capital of England. <laughs> it's Interestingly, it's also where Robert Plant and John Bonham are from, or right outside of there. So similar kind of area, and there is a story about them jamming with those guys. Uh, the, other, the other context here is that Black Sabbath had had this really fast rise to world stardom. They had toured the world over the last couple of years, made these records after coming from a you know what they considered a relatively small town or i think what they would even describe as as the aforementioned backwater and now they're in LA they're renting some super rich guy's mansion and they're just wanting to live it up and just enjoy as much of american excess as possible by the way the guy that owned the mansion yep John DuPont. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. As in the Delaware DuPont as family? As in Fox the murderer? Catcher, yeah. As exactly. in Fox oh, Catcher shit. John DuPont, yes. Like, I'll kill you and hide out in my tank, John DuPont. <laughs> <laughs> Died in jail. Died wow. in jail, yeah. Right, and so for listeners, the DuPont family is a famously rich family, but they're particularly well-known to us because their name is just on everything in our home state of Delaware. And uh, this one, this guy was the guy that shot the wrestler. He was played by Steve Carell in that film. Anyway, he owned the mansion. So they're just like running amok in this huge six bedroom. <laughs> you know. How old are they at this point? Because I'm thinking. Uh, they're definitely in their 20s. Right. And so you give a bunch of 20 year olds, yeah, a, you know, 12,000 square foot mansion and an unlimited supply of cocaine. <laughs> like, it's right. going to be the greatest. Well, not greatest, but I'm well, sure they're living it up. They were living it up. Speaking of, of living, and this is, I heard this quoted in a couple different interviews, unclear how apocryphal it is, but the estimates are that the record itself cost $60,000 and the cocaine bill was $75,000. <laughs> wow. $75,000 of like 1972 money, by the way, mm-hmm. which right. is, I mean, that has to be. Many hundreds of thousands of dollars, like what, like six hundred thousand dollars for cocaine in today's money. I mean, I've got to imagine the the price per gram of cocaine has only gone up over time. I mean, this is what happens with commodities, right? So, well, actually, got better at running that business. No, war on drugs is uh, the price. uh, The price of cocaine has gone down. Uh, Price per gram of cocaine has gone down precipitously. Yeah, it has. Well, then, then wait. That means they were doing even more cocaine. No, no, that means that they were paying more per gram. So the the coke itself. You know, I'm trying to think of like I, I have no idea what cocaine prices are, but I do know that's like one of those tenets of <laughs> like, like the like war on drugs. <laughs> the war on drugs drove down the cost of drugs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How long do we know? How long they were actually in the mansion for? I know it just says that it was recorded in May of '72. I don't know if that was the month of May or just started in May. Did they get done in a week or was it? No, I think it was more like four weeks. It, it was something in okay. that realm, and they had. We should mention, too, just in terms of the recording, the song Snowblind, which was the original title for the album, as Adam mentioned, a pretty obvious reference to cocaine. <laughs> no. That the record company put the kibosh on. They had recorded that one back in England right before they came. So that was the only one that was that was recorded at a separate session. 
Oh, that's interesting. I'll have to go back and listen to the the differences between the uh, I guess the the production or the recording and see if if that one sticks out as obviously recorded in another you know uh, studio. The other interesting note and their production on this record was already mentioned is, is this is their first foray into producing their own record. They had worked for all three of the previous records with this guy called Roger Bain. They were really happy with what came out of those and they were, they didn't have a falling out with him or anything, but they wanted to try doing it themselves, particularly Tony Iommi, who's from all my readings, I kind of get as the leader of the band. He seems to be the, the primary writer, at least the person who starts the writing process via these guitar riffs and leads the production on this record. And then their writing process is that they start with riffs. A lot, I think a lot of times Ozzy would come up with melodies to go against those riffs, but then all the lyrics, or pretty much all the lyrics, were written by the bass player, Geezer Butler. Oh, wow. Geezer. <laughs> yeah, so it's that, in- interesting. Yeah. That's a cool mix of everybody having a little bit of you know, responsibility. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. You know, that, like, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah, I thought the record was a lot of fun. Maybe we can segue into some general thoughts, uh, how you guys feel about it. But it was definitely a lot of fun to listen to. This, for sure, and and as do their other records, sets the template for a lot of rock bands going forward. Not just metal, in other words. Uh, You know, especially if you if you're in a band that likes riffs and solos. This is this is where you want to go. Yeah, go straight to the source, man. (laughs) Yeah. What did you guys? What was the overall impression of the record? I have the other, well, the first three Sabbath records on vinyl, right? So, you know, I went through a major riff thing from like 2008 till present, right? And uh, at some point picked up a bunch of Sabbath records. The thing that immediately leapt out is something we've all touched on already is that like the production quality is, I would say, higher, um, it, not just that like it's 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 better per se, but it's I'd say slightly higher file. Like it sounds like they had a budget, and it sounds like they had more ideas, right? Tape effects and flanging, and uh, they actually you know, just, just some cool production poured, techniques. They poured cocaine on the mixing board. That that actually helped a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got some well, notes about Super Knot. Maybe we'll get to that. So, <laughs> yes. They they definitely had a little more time, and then I. I'm under the impression that those first two records, or certainly that first record, is pretty much just them as a live band. Whereas this, you're hearing a lot more overdubs. You know, it's definitely them, I think, purposely trying to branch out, both stylistically and in terms of how what they're putting on top of the tracks. Sure. You know, I, I remember reading a, like, how to, how to budget for your record once, and it talked about that first sa- the first Sabbath record, and it said, like, yeah, you know, the general rule of thumb is a song a day, you know? Yeah, sure, like, the Beatles cut, you know, uh, with the Beatles in 48 hours, and Sabbath cut their first record in 72 hours, and it's like, you're not that band. Like, you didn't just play 70 <laughs> shows in 50 days, like, like you right. didn't just do that, and you're band probably just isn't that good to start with. So, like, and I think there's absolutely truth to that. Sabbath give me, always give me like a bit of like a, the band, like a British, the band vibe in that I always feel like the wheels are going to come off and then they never do. Uh, they just mm. keep rolling like a machine. What, what struck me, I went back and listened to those first three Sabbath records this past week as well, just to get some additional context. And in particular, that first one, it had been a little while since I'd heard it. 
it's such right from the first couple notes. It is such a clear freaking mission statement of what they are about. It's oh, astounding. Yeah. It's astounding. What's what's the first track on the on their debut? Oh jeez, it might just be called it Black might be Sabbath. Called Black Sa- Sa- oh, is it just called Black Sabbath? Yeah, okay, I think I know. But like tune. from the first interval drop in, you're just like, oh, this is the first song new. is called. Black this Sabbath. is some doom shit. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and if you were hearing that in 1970, I feel like that would have been pretty special. But that wait, said, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> it has like the sound of running water. And then you hear like a single church bell in the distance. And oh, then the I do know. <laughs> I do. Yes, I, I know the tune. By the way, released the Friday the 13th. Oh, perfect. It's February so 1970. So it's, yeah, it's just, come so on, come on. <laughs> That's awesome. Is it really released on Friday the 13th? It was really released That's on so Friday the 13th, 1970. God. Yeah. What, a, so what, it, a, what amazing work. Okay, other impressions of the record overall. And then I want to talk about what, what Sabbath is even a kind of a response to overall. Like they, I feel like the structure of the songs on this album was, again, I think it got to my comment about it feeling a little bit more mature. It didn't seem as A, B, A, B, C, you know, they were, they were going in a lot of different directions with the structures. The songs felt a little bit like a journey. Um, and I, I definitely appreciated that. Some, there are some notable exceptions that were not like that, but I like the song structure a lot. My own one comment is that it did feel a little samey in terms of the actual sounds of the instruments we're making, the distortion sounds and stuff like that. I thought sounded a little samey. And then even the song that they go to break it up with changes that song in and of itself is so samey. Like it's, it's very samey encapsulated. And so it, it didn't work as well as a, uh, as a, of a break as I think that they intended it to be. But overall I thought, you know, it's a very strong album, and it did definitely kept my interest, even though I do feel like after, what is it, like 40 minutes, 38 minutes or something like that of of tracks, I need a little bit of a break in terms of the, the overall sound that they're producing. Like, I could have used a little bit more. I don't, I don't need bright guitars from a Sabbath album, but I needed something, a little bit of a change. Yeah, I, I think it's a solid offering from them. I, this is my first time ever going through this album. I liked it. It rocked. I mean, there are some definite rough spots on it, but I can I can definitely see the progression from what we're talking about. I, I listened to those first two albums a ton as a kid when my dad first introduced me to Sabbath. I remember he, he might have actually put on Paranoid. And I think like the first time I heard uh, Sabbath was Iron Man and my head, you know, exploded. And he was like, you got to listen to this because I might have listened to like you know, a Metallica song. He's like, oh, you want to see where these guys came from? And he put that on and it was, you know, uh, a real a real eye opener. But, yeah, I, I thought this was a solid a solid uh, album. I dug it. Not sure if it yet reaches the point of that 1001 list, but we'll, we'll get into it. We'll see what happens. Adam, I'm very surprised that your dad was into black Sabbath, very oh, devout dude. Catholic. And right. they, they sort of purposely piss on a lot of that. Or, or uh, people think that they purposely piss on a lot. Yeah. Of that let's stuff. talk about that right. because as I was listening more closely to these Sabbath lyrics, well, first of all, I think black Sabbath as a concept, meaning their look, their name, their doomy image came as a response to the hippie music of the 60s. It was definitely anti-hippie. But is it actually anti-religion? Because I feel like the message in a lot of these songs is man is evil and ye must repent else face damnation. 
Yeah. Well, so you guys, we all went to the same high school. We had a teacher at the high school. It was a Catholic high school, so they, I guess they could teach whatever they want in quote-unquote religion class. Do you remember the satanic panic video that we were forced to watch when we were like 16? It was might have been made in the 90s or 80s, but it was basically a really religious video talking about how Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, I mean, stuff that is honestly tame and just 70s rock, but how Satan was literally going to come out of the speakers and possess (laughs) you, which just made me want to listen to Sabbath even more. I'm like, oh, shit, this is awesome. Yeah, Yeah, it's like when you were a kid and they were like, don't play with a Ouija board. And you're like, I don't know. I'm going to have to see about that. Now I'm doing it tonight. (laughs) I I specifically remember we kind of challenged that. This was like our junior year of high school or something like that. And... I remember asking that one particular teacher who was saying that, like, oh, there's backwards, the, oh, right. all the backwards <laughs> stuff. Backwards we play talking, it backwards. Right? And, and I was like, what song are you talking about? And he's like, oh, Stairway to Heaven. I was like, is that just the only song that you know by any of these bands? Like, what are you talking about? Have you listened to Stairway to Heaven? It's about, it's about nothing. Mordor yeah. and, like, <laughs> Gollum. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's actually much nerdier than you think it yeah, it is, right? Much nerdier. There was there was some I don't remember all the details, but there was some controversy where a kid, a teenager, committed suicide and claimed that it was these records or playing these records no, backwards was, that did it or something, right? What you're talking about is Ozzy's first solo album, The Blizzard of Oz, had a song called Suicide Solution on it. And some kid killed himself, and his parents sued Ozzy, saying that he had uh, listened to Suicide Solution before he killed himself, as if that was the cause. Happy-go-lucky right. kid just walking down right, the street right. whistling. Heard it once. And then he hears it once and brain. kills himself. It's like, no, you yeah. had a deeply disturbed child who killed himself, and that's the music that spoke to him because, you know. He was deeply disturbed. He was deeply right. disturbed. You probably should have been better better parents. <laughs> no offense to them. <laughs> That well, then that what really was the battleground time of First Amendment on records. That was around the time that Tipper Gore, Tipper Gore right? got the explicit yeah, label right. and the Two Live Crew stuff, and Frank Zappa was in congressional hearings fighting for. Oh my God, that. that's right. Yeah, and I think if you just take a brief survey of the music of today, I think you know who won that battle. So right. Sorry to take us down a Satan path, but uh, do music rocks. I love a Satan path. I'm just saying they're really not terribly Satanic (laughs) in their message. They're They're a little more fire and brimstone preacher, actually. Okay. The other thing I noticed about the record that was referenced in your guys' sort of general thoughts was that this is, while the song structures I agree with Tom are good, I think all the songs have a kind of a beginning, middle, and end. They definitely some of the songs have this like we took two songs or three songs and smashed them together, mm-hmm. which I generally just kind of like. It's a subjective thing, but I dig it. Gives variety within the song, but it's a more indulgent record. When I listened particularly to Paranoid this past week, I was like, "Oh, this is a this is pop music." They got it tight, and that's even for the long songs like War Pigs. But everything about it just feels contained and like a hit, you know. Mm-hmm. And these don't really feel like ready-made hits. They feel like they stretched out their legs and just said, screw it. We're going to take it to some, some strange new directions. <laughs> well, you're telling me that uh, this uh, legendarily Coke-fueled album isn't as focused as you would like it to be? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Okay. The other thing I feel like we can't talk about Black Sabbath without mentioning 
is Tony Iommi's fingers. So <laughs> Tony Iommi's the guitar player in the band, and when he was a teenager, he had been playing guitar for a couple of years, he was in a machining accident, he cut off the tips of his middle and ring finger on his fret hand of the guitar. And he was told in the recovery at the hospital that he would never play guitar again. And he was pretty depressed about it, of course. And then interestingly, someone came in, a friend came in or something and played him Django Reinhardt on guitar, another famous jazz guitar player who his fret hand was horribly burned in a fire and he basically only had full use of two of the fingers and he's amazingly fast and interesting guitar player. And it kind of inspired Tony Iommi to, to read, you know, to say, screw it, I'm going to do it, right? And he ends up creating, because he worked at this machine shop, he ended up creating this weird device that fits over and creates new tips on the fingers. Really? That's like plastic covered in leather or something. So that's what he's wow. using. Now I've never heard that. I mean, I knew about his fingers, but I didn't know about the, pro, you know, the homemade prosthesis that he did. Yeah. I, I, I'm pretty sure he uses that 100% of the time. And it's, it, it is only just the tip, I think. I saw a picture of his fingers. I think the ring finger has a little more off, but it's, you know, it's above the first knuckle and everything. Anyway, he, so he fought back. Now, interestingly, he's a lefty. So it never, he said he never, it never even occurred to him just to flip to the other side. That would be the easiest <laughs> and, thing to do. And strum with his, his uh, bad hand, right? Correct, yeah. yes. <laughs> Correct. But the reason I think it's important is because this led at least in some part, to why they sound the way they do. Because what he noticed right away was that it was way harder to bend the strings with these prostheses. So they started detuning their guitars down from E down to E flat and down to D and even down to C sharp. And this had the added effect of creating, you know, this really More low, doom. rumbly, right. doom sound. It's <laughs> right. yeah. awesome. So... Just, just thought I'd mention that. It was also before the time of super light strings. Uh, the, the string gauge variety that we have now was sort of maybe just, just coming on the scene and was maybe even helped along by artists like this who wanted them to be super light, you know, as, the, as those genres were developing. But he had fewer options he, then. He's playing 13s. Exactly. You know, yeah. From being a kid. Right. So just detune that thing, which just makes the strings slacker, right? Right. We, we heard a little piece of Wheels of Confusion slash The Straightener. I like how inconsistent they are with just naming these songs. Well, actually, let me start by saying, Black Sabbath, you have great song titles. <laughs> so, what the hell does The Straightener mean? Right. You got anything on that? that the, straight, the Straightener is the best part of the song, too. It doesn't mean anything. <laughs> okay, but let's listen. We listened to a little bit of this, this track. It's kind of at least two tracks in one, as I mentioned. So let's play a different different spot of this one. on the tune you know i like i really like this uh device that they use here 
I feel like it also kind of it gave me the the intro gave me the feel of um, that song uh, "Peace of My Heart," yeah, where it yes. feels like it starts company, yeah. like in Medias Ross. I feel like I walked in in the middle of a ten minute jam session, and like I'm right. kind of like I just like opened the door and I heard it, and then they break into the song. It sounds great. I really love that. It's such a great device, and it makes you feel like. Again, like this is some eternal thing that has been existing forever, and you're just like kind of crossing paths with it f- for this one period. I don't know. It's a great device. I, I think it's. I think it's fantastic. I wrote down "Peace of My Heart" as well, and mm-hmm. it's just funny because Tom, last time we were together a couple of days ago, we were talking about being great on that old game show, name that tune. But this would have been one that would have maybe thrown if you just played the first note of this song out of context. I think I would have said "Peace of My Heart." Yeah. Yeah. No, but. It's 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 a smart way to start a song. It's a smart way to start the album. And I feel like that you, you get a lot of touches of that on this album. Just kind of like nice little smart things. Now, one other thing that I noticed that I very much appreciated is that like the lyrics for this song almost aggressively don't rhyme for most of the time. <laughs> and I, I had a real problem with a lot of the previous Sabbath lyrics being very sing song rhymey and this is a, a nice departure from that um it made it it just makes it feel like a more i don't know, just more mature song when you're not getting this a a b b rhyme structure in there what's that guy from snl who does the lists on weekend update it's been stefan stefan yeah so I, I was listening to this and i felt like stefan for a minute because i was like this song's got everything it's got tambourine acoustic guitar harmonizing leads a guitar run through a leslie cabinet it's got all of that <laughs> there's a tambourine in it at the end when i i suppose it transitions to the straightener which you just wouldn't think of somebody rocking a tambourine in a uh, sabbath tune and they do it well and we all know that tambourines are remarkably hard to nail in the studio so i really appreciated the use of the tambourine in this song know there's that background guitar that comes in right when the straightener starts that kind of like um not arpeggios but these kind of they're kind of like playing through single notes but it's not like mm-hmm. soloing yeah, what is the effect that they're using i think that? that's the, that leslie, the leslie yeah i think okay i think that's the leslie spun uh, up at full speed okay like that sounded really guitar. cool right yeah why don't sound- you for some of our listeners adam why don't you just tell us what a leslie is sure so leslie cabinet is typically a large wooden cabinet that's about four feet tall by three feet wide by three feet wide. It actually has inside of it two speakers. One speaker is in the base of it, and there's a a chunk of foam sitting on top of that, and it's spinning. So essentially what you have, if you're standing at any one point in the room, as this thing spins, you're getting a chunk of the sound. That is also simultaneously Uh, spinning with a horn, another speaker in the top of this cabinet that's also spinning. So essentially what you get is the sound being thrown around the room and you get kind of a Doppler effect and it's it's very noticeable in in the the world of Hammond organs because you can hear them turn it on and turn it off. So it essentially takes the note and goes whoa, 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 and you can speed it up. If you do that with a guitar, you get this sound. 
nice. Adam, if you had to pick your favorite Hammond organ moment, what would it be? Of all time? Yes. Oh, my God. I was going to say that Boston song, Foreplay. Oh, that's crazy. Oh, that's a great that's one. pretty <laughs> friggin' badass. That dude rocks that thing. We'll come back to me next week. We'll come oh, up yeah, with the best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. We'll put that down. That's one. I'll let you know when we get to like 10. Put out a playlist. <laughs> the, the device that I liked here and that I thought they used pretty effectively in different places throughout the record was the time change, the feel change in the time where they drop into that, it, just in the main section of the song, Wheels of Confusion, they drop into that part that has a three feel. In, in actuality, it's, it's four bars of three and one bar of four, which adds up to 16, which I've learned semi-recently is a rhythmic device that is most commonly found in bossa nova music. Yeah. Ooh, I didn't know that. Interesting. Yeah. It does have a cool feel, and I and again, you talk about pointing in the direction of so many bands that we hear these days. But that device of extending the riff, and uh, you know, you kind of play the long riff, and then you sort of extend it at the end to like transition to another part or something like that. I feel like that's that's so common these days, but I don't know if anybody was doing that before this. I don't know if this mm-hmm. was like uh, if they were maybe they probably didn't. Know, it probably not this song specifically that they originated on, but that sort of that device is is very common in the metal world I, uh, these days. I heard God, was, is it called? Was the song on the album called Coconut Records? It was like an indie hit. I feel like it had like a movie star in it. Uh, that, is that Jason Schwartzman? Yeah, that's that's the one. Yeah, that that hit. Uh, has a similar device, Tom, where the verse is a bar of 6-4 and then a bar of So it has like a two feel, right? But it doesn't really ever feel rested. So then when they drop into the straight four four chorus, it feels like the you know the most tap your toe shit ever. Although the whole time you're just tapping your toe to two, you can't quite figure out why it never feels resolved. It's pretty simple though. When like once you figure out the trick. The the other thing that this song makes me think of, and it, again, this is a style choice that Tony Iommi uses sort of throughout the Black Sabbath catalog on display here is the dueling guitar solo oh yeah where the solos hard pan where the (laughs) solos don't really have any knowledge of each other while they're going on totally right right and i just just, i mean if it feels like it's just noodling noodling two channels it is noodling yeah when i listen to solos like this i do wonder like was he listening back to the other one or not Because like there's sometimes
songs where you sort of feel like, well, it's so rhythmically tight. But then you're also sort of like, oh, why? These are some odd choices. Like, if you can hear the other guy going, you know? <laughs> or in this case, it's him, though, as well. So. Or maybe it's one of those, like, we just recorded five different versions of the solo, and I was just like, ah, I don't know which one I like more. How about we just use them both? Yeah, we'll just <laughs> throw one on the right, ones. one on the left. It'll be fine. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> <Definitely> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, dude, everything's pentatonic. There's no bad harmonic right. ideas in there, right? <laughs> Yeah. When you said that thing about his finger, though, as, and I think back across the solo work in this album, there's not a lot of bends and not a lot of slow vibrato on the notes, right? Like, yeah. you, you never get to a blues feel. And that I guess that kind of That's part is of explained it. by his fingers, which is really interesting. Yeah, and you know what he is a huge fan of is the hammer, the rhythmic hammer-on. That's a definitely a style hallmark for him because mm-hmm. I think it's because he can't feel when he puts his ring finger down or his or his middle, he can't actually feel the fret or the string, right? So he's got to kind of hit extra hard. I think he built up strength in his finger right. for that reason, and now he does a lot of stuff where he plucks once and does, like, a long hammer-on. Multiple hammer-ons, I mean. Yeah. Okay, let's uh, let's keep it rolling here. Let's talk about, let's go in chronological order of the record. Let's talk about the song Changes. of a departure <laughs> this this gave me uh spinal tap vibes and he sits down and he's like oh this is a real departure and he's playing just like a d minor or something uh, this is one step up from chopsticks or the knuckle song because i read that tony iomi taught himself piano while he was in the mansion and it sounds just like this is what you would get from somebody who played piano for two days <laughs> Yeah, two days straight, though, on cocaine, to be clear. Yeah, okay, all right, well, so yes. maybe he's reaching that 10,000 hours thing, right? Each hour counts for five. <laughs> it's double, double time. Dog years and coke hours, so he actually played a lifetime with the piano. I think this, this, is, I think this is a nice song. I, I, I kind of like it. I agree it's nothing, there's not a lot of variety within it, but I've come to like it part of... Why I've come to like it is because of the cover version by Charles Bradley that made its way oh, into, yeah. into the Big Mouth yeah. cartoon theme. So that might be where people know it better from. Oh, wow. Okay. This was recorded. He's a soul, kind of a soul guy who I think is passed away now, but it was recorded in the last 10 years. And it does a nice job with this song. But I, I think it's a nice little little departure for them. This song is dying for a bridge. Like listening to this song, oh I was God. like, yeah, if this song had totally. a bridge, oh, oh coming back into it would have been great. But I just, I was, by the end of it, I was like, okay, I get it. Like, where's that? I'm so bored with what you're doing. I need you to, I need you to make me want it again. And it never made me want it again. So yeah, if this song had a bridge, it'd be a fantastic song. But without it, it just felt a little samey throughout. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, thought- I also like this tune, Rob. I, I also sort of came back to this through the Charles Bradley version, um, you know, which, I mean, no doubt, Tom, it, it's it's very fair uh, 
it's very fair feedback about the, the desire for a bridge. I also think that this highlights the production value, right? Like if you if you just like listen to the chorus, there's some kind of like tape flange chorus thing that's happening there that just isn't really present on the previous Sabbath yeah. records. Like, and you know, Adam, you know, I feel like Ozzy, he's really he's opening up, right? You get to hear what he really sounds. Yeah, like. I I agree. <laughs> he, he's I think he sounds generally he sounds great. On this album, yeah, sure. There's, well, I think there's one or two songs that I, I probably have some critiques on, but yeah, I, I think he sounds great on this song. Actually, you know what's something that's interesting about Ozzy is like he actually is a great singer. You all, you, you know, something that I think was maybe clear with those '90s reality TV shows. No matter how out of it he was, like he could still sing. Uh, right. One thing I did notice: this album doesn't have a lot of double-tracked vocals. Uh, for Ozzy, like a lot, especially in a lot of the verses of the songs, like sometimes they'll beef up a chorus with a double tracked mm-hmm. vocal. But I feel like the double and maybe even triple tracked vocals was such a hallmark of later Ozzy. You listen to Crazy Train, you listen to like 80s Ozzy, and I feel like they were stacking two or three Ozzy's on top of him to get and almost like an effect. But this mm-hmm. was just Ozzy yeah, out there in front. And it actually, I thought it's a sign of a person who's got a powerful voice that they can compete with music that is this heavy with just a single tracked vocal especially getting a lot of the verses tony Omi's like i'm getting two solos ozzy's like i better get two vocal tracks (laughs) (laughs) i did think there there's a turnaround that either happens at 116 or starts at 116 that i thought was really in the absence of a bridge i thought the turnaround to get back to the start of the verse was nice. It was it was tasty. It wasn't just one four five start back at the one. There was a slight transition in there that brought you around over the course of three or four chords back into the verse, and it felt nice. It was it was well thought out. I know what you're talking about. It's like a little interlude, and then it yeah. sort of just starts over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess. Right. Well, let's drop that in right now. like some Mellotron to me. Oh, yeah, definitely. Mellotron. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say to bring it back to what you said, Phil, that was my note as well, that I thought this was a nice production. Yeah, just, yeah. just the production itself using the Mellotron. It just felt simple and effective, but like additive to their, to their overall sound. And at least it texturally gave me a break from the record. Cause if I had a complaint, Tom referenced it earlier, it, it feels a little, it wears you down over the course of a recording. Even though a lot of the songs are fun, and the riffs are generally pretty good. And even within the songs, they change a decent amount. It's just like this kind of music does does wear me down. If they had dropped this song exactly halfway through, like last song, side one, or start of side two, I feel like that would have been better placement for that break because I feel like you could go 25 minutes hard, and that's where you start to get a little exhausted. Changes would have been nice to fit in there. Just a comment on on track ordering. No, I agree. It's an odd choice at track number they three. They hit it pretty yeah. early to bring mm-hmm. it down. Yeah. And then they yeah. follow it up with what, that FX? 
the instrumental oh God, song where they're just <laughs> literally they said they were just throwing stuff at the guitar strings to get different sounds <laughs> oh i have a fun detail about fx which is yeah it's Ooh. ridiculously indulgent which is apparently when they were doing that yeah it started with iomi just leaving his guitar totally hot on the stand and accidentally hitting it with his finger or whatever and then they all just started hitting it he was hitting it with his cross medallion but apparently during this whole interlude they were all completely naked <laughs> Cocaine's a terrible drug. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think every, like, like, this had to clear so many people, though, right? Like, the band was like, yeah, we're going to do it. And then, like, somebody else presumably paid for the record and was like, I don't know about the minute 44 you burn on FX. What else do we have here? You know? And then what? They shoved cocaine up his nose. And then when they got further down the line, next time the question came up, they just had some, like, some coke ready for that. Like, the, the... My my last thought on changes was I think it is in fact about the drummer's divorce, but it, I thought it had little. Maybe they accepted it as a band in the first place because it has a secret werewolf message. What secret werewolf message? <laughs> what? Okay. That's what it always makes me think of when he's singing. Like how can I how can I relate this to Doom? <laughs> I've been going through changes, so he's turning into a werewolf. Yeah, it has like a creepiness to it, almost like Nature's Way made me feel really creepy. Oh, I feel you. Okay. Well, I, I do find it odd, though, that the Geezer Butler, the bassist, wrote the lyrics about the drummer's divorce. So, like, that just seems odd to me. Like, I'm like, oh, if one of you guys was going through a divorce, I wouldn't be like, hey, I wrote a song about your divorce. You want to listen to it? <laughs> Here's how you feel right now. Yeah. What the fuck? <laughs> Actually, you know what else is interesting that you say that, Tom? This song, like, the band never drops in, right? It's yeah. just, there's no drummer. No drummer. No. Yeah, that was their way to get him involved, I guess. <laughs> Aww. <laughs> he gets a participation award. Dude, like, I tell you what, you know what, buddy? I'll give you some cocaine. It'll make it feel better. <laughs> I've always, I've always felt like I've always noticed that Bill Ward, the drummer, is the only guy that doesn't have a cool sounding name. You got Ozzy, you got Geezer, oh, yeah. and then you right. got Tony Iommi, which is Iomi. his real name, but it has a cool stage name vibe to it. And you just got a guy called Bill. <laughs> Bill Ward, <laughs> the plumber, he just walked in and sat down at the drums. Right. Okay, let's move it right along to the next track called Supernaut. Oh, this is the one I was like, my, my first notice, I want to see this live in like 1972, yes. like 1972, right, right. I want to see this live. And oh my God, 
This rocks. It rocks hard. Pretty it rocks hard. hard. I yeah. agree. Yeah. So first of all, awesome title again, guys. Yes, <laughs> I'm into it. <laughs> yes. This is well. So a quick anecdote about this one is apparently there was only one time it ever happened that Zeppelin and Sabbath were in the studio at the at the same time and jammed together. Whoa. And as Bill Ward tells it, it all starts when Bonham comes into the studio, sits down at Bill Ward's drum kit and starts playing this song. And that was like the song that was his favorite Black Sabbath song. So he said it escalated from there into a crazy situation. <laughs> Bonham was there. Plant was there. John Paul Jones was there. Page was not there. <laughs> and his comment was that Bonzo was kicking the crap out of my drum kit. <laughs> <laughs> He was like, awesome. this dude's bass drum work was incredible. I, Ward saying, I played two bass drums, and they only let him play one in Led Zeppelin. So <laughs> they only let him play. I love that. <laughs> John Bonham, you only get one drum. Oh, but apparently it was also Frank Zappa's stated favorite song. I, a lot of people have have commented on why they like this song. Did you guys notice that on Spotify it has a weird? lower number of plays though than every other track on this this yeah. record it, it might have been a vestige of the i noticed there were different remasters of the record on spotify uh, right right but on the one i was listening to compared to the other tracks on the same record it was way lower it was like seven hundred thousand versus multiple millions or something i didn't uh, i'm looking at the 2014 remaster which is what i listened to primarily that looks pretty balanced to me I think one of the things that makes this tune, this riff specifically, it's not that great. I mean, it's a great riff, but there's nothing crazy about it. It's the slide that they do. So he doesn't just fret the note. It's this oundo. He does that the whole tune, and that just makes it for me. So Ozzy said about this song, when I listen to Supernaut, I can just about taste the cocaine. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, all right, then. So- <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's like they're, it's like, are they influencers? Are they like internet marketers for, for cocaine? Yeah, they have like a... They've got like a an interest in like a Colombian cartel. That like yeah, yeah, exactly. They got like a one percent non-voting rights. You know. <laughs> so what about we haven't touched on the little island kind of breakdown with the weird. Yeah, what is that? Two forty-five. I thought it was in a Doobie I... Brothers song for a second. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I like it. It's just so odd. It's odd. Ah, it's yeah. odd. It reminded me very slightly of the breakdown and everybody's got something to hide except for me and my monkey. But it's got that instrument. I had to look this up. I believe it's called a Wiro. G-U-I-R-O. The thing where the guy's like using the stick on the ridges. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, like quick. the washboard looking yeah, thing? Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the right. fish. It kind of, yeah, it's like, yeah. 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 Yeah, it's definitely bizarre, and I feel like the mix over it is particularly bizarre because there is an acoustic guitar in there. It's just yeah, the guitar is what really throws me off. That's what really throws me off the scent, right? 
Um, I'm like, why did, what the hell's did going why on did they here? even have an acoustic guitar in in that mansion? <laughs> like, what were they even thinking? Right, right. Yeah, I don't know. I thought that lyrically, this song kind of cracked me up because I mean, Sabbath lyrics, you're just gonna get kind of rock lyrics. Don't try to reach me because I'll tear up your mind. I've seen the future. I've left it behind. Oh, <laughs> like he's like trying to come off like it's really deep shit, but it's like uh, really okay. I mean, I I guess <laughs> that that reminds me of this other anecdote that I heard about their time in this mansion, where obviously they were so high on cocaine. A lot of people would come by, come by, stop by, right? Because one, they knew they had great drugs. They said Pete Townsend came by, like Deep Purple, <laughs> their whole crew came by, and one of the band members related a, an anecdote where. I think it was the Deep Purple Roadies or something came by. And Tony Iommi was so high that he pretended to be a ghost, like with a bed sheet over his head. <laughs> and like legitimately thought he was scaring these people. <laughs> and they were just they were just confused. Yeah, I did have one note on here that I praised Ozzy's ability to sing a little bit earlier. I'm gonna walk it back a little bit because he sure writes a melody and sticks with it. There is not yeah, a lot yeah, of vamping. He, he really yeah, does. Yeah. Just like I, these are the exact notes I'm going to sing the entire time. <laughs> you know, this song has four notes. Yeah. This song has yeah. five. <laughs> That's. I feel like at least he's in the earlier records. He is just singing exactly what the guitar is playing, like quite often. So at least he's broken away from that. But but yeah, I agree. But that in a way that almost gives me more of the jam feel of, of this song. Like it was just born of a jam. And this is the only line Ozzy could come up with. And yeah, he just he just stuck with it. <laughs> I've got to give it to Iommi, though. He goes back and doubles a lot of the guitars, right? There's like this hard pan harmony on the right-hand side. Uh, and I, you know, it's just interesting. I don't know. It's probably not that interesting. It's probably like a fourth or a fifth, right? But uh, it's tight. It's not what we hear on Wheels of Confusion, right? Which is just two hard pen tracks just right, blazing right. away. This is like he he had some sense of what he did, um, and he went and stacked it up. You know, and it's pretty fast. Like you know, this wouldn't see, have been easy with two track tape and a lot of cocaine. Right. Well, see, I was I was listening for those harmonies as well, Phil. Especially since Tom and I are about to go into the studio and record some similar genre music shortly, and I I thought he's mostly just doing octaves. Mm, and so like you know what I mean like and like the aesthetic is to not get in the way of the lines but I'd be curious to hear if you think you hear something else I think a lot of times he does the line and then he octaves it so like I'm thinking like right at the beginning like there's like a wah-wah sort of thing that's like hard panned right that I don't think is an octave but I don't know we could we could we could get into this offline if you'd if you'd like to Sure. Well, he definitely does that a fair amount of times. I'm not. I'm not really commenting on this particular song or that part you're talking about. But but I but I, I know what you're talking about in general too. Just like stacking the octaves, so it'll sound massive, but it's not really, you know, a harmony. Just in case you missed that, listeners. By the way, this is Phil and Rob making plans to get together to talk about music <laughs> outside of this venue. <laughs> this podcast can contain yeah. us. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. All right, let's keep it rolling. Next song on the list is called Snowblind, the original surprise intended <laughs> co- cocaine title track. Through line. Yeah. Yeah, let's let's listen to Snowblind.
thoughts? I mean, it rips. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This I thought this was a mediocre riff at best, and I know I think this is one of his more well-known songs. I know people freak out when he does this live. I had never actually heard it. I'd heard of this song, but I'd never actually heard it. Doesn't do much for me. There's a couple goofy things in there. Like the, they whisper cocaine at the 42nd mark. <laughs> like, come on, dude. Like, are you that obsessed? Like you're, you're doing blow all day. Do you really have to? And the song's called Snowblind. You want the album to be called Snowblind. Ozzy's like, I don't think they're going to get it. Let's whisper blatantly cocaine in the right channel. At the 42nd mark. Oh, oh okay, that's Well, it. I mean, this is the band that had a song in their previous album called Sweet Leaf that they had to start right. with a coughing sound in case you missed what that was about. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Not giving the audience a lot of credit on this one. Again, I have a quote from Ozzy. He's, he's, he's explaining that by saying, we wrote Snowblind because cocaine was the most amazing discovery of our lives. <laughs> <laughs> But listen, for a song fueled by and about cocaine, it's very plotting. Yeah, (laughs) totally, totally. It's more like classic Sabbath. It's just a little more like a, you know, like a groove off one of the first three records. Maybe even like a throwaway from those first three records. And it bothered me. There is actually throughout the whole song when they pick through the chord, one of the notes is blatantly out of tune. I mean, the guitar is straight up out of tune. I don't know if it's the G string. I was reading that the S, uh, I think Iomi played an SG, a Gibson SG. I heard that those are apparently notorious for having their G string go out of tune. Has to do with the physics of where the tuning peg mm-hmm. is with the nut. But uh, it just, or, or it's not intonated well, but it just bothered me the whole, like once I locked in on that, the rest of the song was ruined for me because I was just <laughs> waiting for it to come the next time and be like, oh God, it's still out of tune. Yeah, I, I agree. I, by this point in the album, I'm getting a little tired and I think this is a great example of a song that rides on the coolness of the name. Like, if I'm just glancing over the track list, I'm like, oh, yeah, that sounds cool. Like, that's my favorite song. I like that one. Because it has a, <laughs> you know, just feels easy to pull in that way. But I don't I, I, I don't think the main part is all that great. I like the breakdown. I think the breakdown, like, piece of it where it, where it does pick up the tempo is pretty cool. I like the, I guess the, it's the chorus. Um, <laughs> I guess it's the chorus. I guess it's the chorus because Ozzy kind of comes in and sings or that descend riff, but then they do the solo over that sort of chorusy descend part, and then it wraps back into the riff at the beginning. Um, I like that device. I think that's a good device of like sort of, you know, instead of going back to the A part and doing the solo over the A, you're doing the solo over the, the B or maybe even the C part or whatever it is, which is kind of like the chorusy part. Again, good device, cool. nice song structures, and uh, I think that this is where the extra time in the studio and the extra time to 
think about that and you know the extra hours in your day that you get when your <laughs> heart is constantly going 160 beats a minute and you're, you know, oh can't sleep because you're grinding your teeth down uh it's you know right. where that where that really pays off <laughs> before we move on this this has i think my favorite you know lyric on the record uh it's towards the end of the song where ozzy says don't you think i know what i'm doing don't tell me that it's doing me wrong. You're the one who's the loser. Yeah. <laughs> this is where I feel I belong. <laughs> yeah, so I, you know, he really lets you know where he's at on it at this point. Yeah, who's telling Ozzy that he's a loser? He's in one of the most successful bands in the world. He's like, I'm spending $75,000 on cocaine in the course of a month or two. But you're, you're a loser. I'm not a loser. <laughs> all right yeah. let's this is we've, we've gone on a bit here let's go on to the last track on our list cornucopia let's play a snippet of that same vibe as the cream riff politician like it's really doomy and really evil but it feels a little ripped off to me just a little oh there's not a lot to it (laughs) there's not a lot to it yeah i I thought this had a good intro adam i think referenced the the song godzilla by blue oyster cult a little bit is that was that what you were referring to there adam oh i just meant I could picture Godzilla coming out of the ocean to this, but now I got to go listen to Godzilla by Blue Oyster Cult. Oh yeah, it's a fun song. Oh, that's a great song. <laughs> but and I, because I was wondering if this was even more detuned than normal, like if this was their one of the first forays into drop C drop sharp C. or something. Right, right, yeah. Right. But it really peters out. And again, like by this point in the album, I'm thirsting for a break, which I guess is coming up next in the form of Laguna Sunrise. <laughs> But I just thought bit, that a disappointing. I, I had I have two notes on here. One is that this sound describes what it feels like. That sound of the riff describes to me what it feels like when you have just tipped over the edge into too drunk, and you're sort of it feels a little <laughs> sloshy and like. <laughs> um, and then okay, the part that they kick into it like it's like two oh seven. They kick into that part. If you pulled all the distortion out of that, that could just be the A part of a pop song. Like, it felt very, like, bright to me, but it was distorted to hell. But it, like, the riff right, itself right. felt, it felt bright, especially compared to how heavy the intro riff is. Yeah. 
I just thought it was an that, odd choice. That transition there actually is what kept me throughout the song. Rob, you mentioned like it gets a little, uh, it drags on a bit. When it hit that point, that was at least enough to give me another little carrot to continue moving down the line. It, it switched it up a bit, which I appreciated. Ozzy, though, I think he's sharp almost the entire time in this song. I, I don't know if, I guess I should listen to the others and see how high this is in terms of the register of where he's singing for the rest of the album. But th- this, again, at, as much as I love this tune, it was a bit tough to get through it. Yeah, this I, I would say, too, that just the overall distortion element kind of bumped me. It felt muddier. It's already a muddy album, you know, in terms of the tone, right? And it felt like it, this, if, if Rob, if you had told me that they had recorded this one in England and this was the odd right. man out, I would have believed it because this just sounds, yeah, just compressed and just like squished down whereas everything else while it's heavy seems to breathe a bit more i i never considered that this was super tuned down because i do hear what you guys are saying about this sounding like it drags in like a weird way right like like you're saying like uh, it's sludgier cool any any other thoughts on this tune before we wrap it up here boys nah let's get to the vote and because i'm curious i'm curious to hear what you guys gotta say i'm curious to hear what i'm gonna say so <laughs> we've, been, here. Uh, we've been discussing Black Sabbath's Volume 4, a record that famed rock critic Lester Bangs called The Sound of Drug-Taking, Beer-Guzzling Hooligans from Britain's oft-pilloried cultural armpit <laughs> let loose in L.A. Do we such agree? a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> do, we, do we agree? No, so, you're the loser. <laughs> Right, right. Does Black Sabbath's Volume 4 belong on the list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die, Adam? I like this album. It's a good album. I'll listen to it again. I think it's a solid offering from Black Sabbath. I don't think it reaches the level of an album that you need to hear. I saw that the other two, the first two Black Sabbath albums are on the list. I think those are much more important in terms of the canon of rock and metal. So I would say those two, you know, we haven't reviewed those, but those would be more likely to be on my list. So I'm going to say no on this album. Uh, Phil, goes to you. Adam, I'm so glad you just gave me the update on the status of Black Sabbath and Paranoid because I was, I was right there. I'm also wavering. But I think I'm with you. I think you can pass, and I am going to pass, on Black Sabbath Volume 4. I liked this record, too. I actually own the first three Sabbath records, and I'll probably buy this. I thought it was awesome. Uh, But I I also agree that um, if I'm comparing it to, you know, some of the other Sabbath records, I'm going to give it a no. Tom. Who? You know... Again, I, I didn't know how I was going to vote until I heard you two guys say that it was a no. It's going to actually make me vote yes on keeping it on, <laughs> uh, contrarian to the end. Um, no, honestly, I, I think that this is a fun album. I think it's a great album. I think that if you are interested in the direction that heavy metal went and all the various splinter genres of metal, um, it, it helps to point a lot in those directions. I also think that this isn't something that you're not going to hear if you're not seeking it out. And I think you should hear it. Yeah. So I'm going to give it a yes. It's It just ekes its way in, just barely gets its way in. Yeah. I actually feel pretty similarly to Tom and I think I'm going to land on the side of yes. 
Reason being, I, I agree with everything that was said. It's, it's really close for me. It's a real squeaker. I enjoyed the record. I'll definitely listen to it again. It's a lot of fun. If you like riff rock and heavy music and just rock and roll, it's, it's good. No doubt about it. But I was concerned about where it lies in terms of cultural importance or importance in the music canon because those other two Black Sabbath records that you mentioned, yeah, they're much. it's much easier to vote them in. Again, we haven't reviewed them yet, but in all likelihood, they'd be on the list. And what I was really looking for reviewing this record, listening to it over the week, and also listening to those other ones, was the story that they had really stretched their wings and grown. I think they just, it's a nose over the finish line here. A coked up nose. Yes, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) Where you're hearing a band that has a little bit of extra cash for the first time. Is it a bit indulgent? Yeah, but the entire 70s rock canon is indulgent, guys. That's not a problem for me. And fueled by cocaine in most cases. In fact, we I think we reviewed an album a couple weeks ago that was cocaine-fueled as well. So all in all, definitely if you're trying to be a guitar player or in any kind of rock band, I, yeah, I, I say listen to it. I say add it to the list. You got, you got time for this one. Well, tie goes to the runner. Good job, Black Sabbath. You made it. Volume 4 is on the list. It would have been a little cooler if it was called Snowblind. For the record, <laughs> yep. <laughs> I also think the cover that we, you know, we don't always talk about the cover imagery, but the cover in- imagery is kind of iconic as well. I like the monochrome aesthetic. I, I just I like everything about the cover, and I don't think the they f- have. You're right. The font face is pretty cool too. Yeah, yeah I don't think they or have the, the best there, yeah. covers really, but this is probably their best album cover. So it would make a nice addition to your record collection, perhaps. Okay, I believe all that remains for us now is to. Dial up the Albinator, crank it up, Tom, and tell us what we're going to be talking about next week. All right. Let's get some good vibes going into that Albinator. I'm very excited to get my homework assignment, as I'm sure you all are, dear listeners. So, without any further ado, drum roll, please. Next week, we will be listening to... Oh, all right, all right. Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, I feel like I'm familiar with maybe two or three songs off of this. I was going to say, I, as a teenager, I never listened to the whole album, but I definitely, you know, there's a couple hits on there, right? Yeah, at least two, right? More than that. Uh, It's got got all of them, man. Yeah, that's all. Okay, right, right, (laughs) right. That's all of the hits. Yeah, it's got You Wanna Know, Hand in My Pocket. Yeah. uh, You Learn. Ironic. Oh, Oh, jeez. They're all of this one? Good Lord. Wow. Powerhouse. Yeah, well, good we'll we'll look forward to diving into that one. A little bit of a feel change, although it's definitely still angry and a little dark, I think, in a good way. But excited to listen to that one. We're going to wrap up the show here. This, if you want to give us any feedback, if you think we're wrong, if you think we're right, whatever feedback, praise, or scorn you want to heap upon us, you can send that email on over to 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. That's 1001, the number, albumcomplaints at gmail.com. And if you're enjoying the show and looking to help us out, we'd love you to rate, review our podcast or to go ahead and share it with a friend. That's always the best way to spread the love and help us out. We appreciate every single one of you and we enjoy having these conversations. Now I will leave you for 1001 Album Complaints. I've been Rob. I've been Tom. I'm Adam. And I'm Phil. Boosh. Boosh.